Thank you for taking the time to speak to your voice of the Cape, Dr. Naidu. How is South Africa doing with development in relation to our public service institutions and our levels of corruption? That's a long story, but it's a story that really has to sort of start from 1994 uh, when political change brought quite dramatic changes to how our uh, public service works. Uh, you know, by that stage it was unrepresentative racially. Um, there were very skewed service delivery patterns which were based on race, as we know. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, these institutions were, were racially unrepresentative, uh, unrepresentative in terms of gender, uh, as well as um, spatially uh, uh, fragmented. Uh, you know, we know that we inherited a, a, a public service that was designed to, to map the segregation which apartheid created. So it's taken many years to, to fundamentally redesign how the public service works. There has been dramatic changes in, in racial representativity, uh, more women are being uh, employed, particularly at higher levels in the public service. And if you think about our the whole way that our political system has been redesigned, uh, in the nine provinces, uh, one a single public service at our national level rather than a public service that's broken up on the basis of race. A lot has been achieved in 25 years, but um, I think as most people would, would um, relate to, the, the biggest challenge seems to be how do we get our public service to, to, to implement and execute policy more, more effectively? Mm -hmm. um, because there continues to be a very uneven service delivery. Communities that were neglected in the past are not finding that the public service is being is very responsive, uh, especially in terms of uh, rolling out social economic services, health, education, water sanitation. Uh, you know, those basic services are still um, uh, distributed in a very uneven way. Um, and so, you know, this has raised questions about, you know, what kinds of skills and capacity and how competent are, are our officials, to what extent uh, have we not promoted a professional public service uh, in, in contrast to a public service that is staffed mainly by officials uh, uh, that are aligned with a particular political party? So there's been this heavy criticism of the ANC that it's, it's tended to, to, to push for uh, officials to be employed in the public service that are partisan, or sympathetic to the party and, and that, that will be um, more responsive to the party rather than to people and that has undermined uh, uh, an emphasis on merit, that, that our public service is, 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 is not meritocratic, it's not professional, it is partisan. So I think the, the biggest challenge now is, is professionalizing, you know, moving to a situation in which uh, People feel that, that more and more officials are being employed on the basis of their competency, their skills, their education, their training, but also that there, there, there needs to be a greater emphasis on uh, creating a throughput system from tertiary education into the public service. So, so I think we need to give students who are interested in studying about government and the, and the public service a realistic prospect that once they finish their education, they, they can be employed 
in the public service and use their skills. And it's not going to matter whether they're aligned with the DA or the ANC. Uh, and that's, that's part of the, 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 the way that we can try to professionalize the public service, by, by linking our education system, uh, particularly at tertiary level, to basically creating a pathway for students to be able to take the skills that they learn about government uh, from the tertiary system into the public service. Do you think that our public service institutions, our bureaucracies, have been developed appropriately in terms of their management structures and the way that bureaucrats are essentially able to function within these bureaucracies? I th no, I, I think an, an another big challenge has been, and, and look, it's, it's a perennial problem, that, that the, the red, problem of red tape, too many rules, too many layers of, of um, reporting, which makes decision making in in our public service uh, very slow. Uh, too many signatures needed to, to sign off on a document. Um, so I think we, we, we continue to, to struggle with those problems. Um, that uh, and, and compounding so, so compounding that kind of red tape uh, culture in, in a lot of our institutions is this problem of politicization. That that. You know, when, when we have a combination of too much red tape with insufficient professionalism, where a, a lot of officials in higher levels are there as political appointments and who move around a lot, depending on where the party wants to put them, that, that creates a very sort of um, dysfunctional set of decision-making processes where there isn't follow-through, depending on, on what ministers and political principles want to do, um, you know, the, the, their their preferences might shift, and um, it creates instability in it at, at, in, in, at the level of management because uh, you don't have civil servants there are, who are willing to challenge the decisions of, of politicians. They'll simply go along. So, depending on how the political winds shift, it creates a lot of instability in terms of decision making. Uh, and again, making that worse is this problem of red tape, uh, too many regulations, too many rules, too many procedures governing, uh, you know, uh, creating several steps before a decision can actually be, be finalized. So I think we, we're still grappling with both, and I, th and I think the solution to that is trying to empower managers uh, to take decisions where they're less encumbered by a whole lot of rules, and that we trust we trust public service managers to make good decisions based on what they know, but you can only really do that if you have a professional public service. If, if, you, if you have a, a, a managerial core which is staffed by people who, who don't feel that they're beholden to a party, but they, they feel that they can build a career uh, and that they're in those positions because of, of what they know, their training, um, etc. So I think, I think that's, that's where we need to get to. Why is public service in South Africa in such a questionable state? What you regard as the flaws in our governance and public infrastructure? If you could summarize, what would you say mm. you'd identify as the, the major flaws in our governance and public infrastructure? I think, I think something which brings those two questions together is, is I don't think we've taken professionalizing the public service seriously. Uh, and, and again, this isn't just an ANC problem, and it's not just a, a, a problem which began in 1994. Even under the National Party, uh, under apartheid governments, the, the bureaucracy was heavily politicized. 
It was designed to be an obedient servant to whatever the dominant party wanted to do. Uh, uh, and so it, it was staffed by people who, who were steeped in the ideology of, of the dominant parties at the time. And that undermined the professional credibility and integrity of, of, of the public service. Now that situation simply carried on after 1994, or largely carried on um, after 1994. Not that there weren't efforts to improve training, improve induction into the system, provide opportunities for public servants to, to acquire knowledge and skills, but we've still continued on with, with, with a system in which public servants, particularly at the highest levels, feel beholden to the dominant party. And, and, and until that changes, until we, we are able to insulate and, and separate, well, you can't separate in, in practice, but you can insulate the public service. So the public service has a duty to implement the policies of, of, the, of the government of the day. That can't change, and it's like that the world over. You cannot, you cannot have a, an independent public service, because that's also dangerous, right? But, but you can have a public service that feels it is sufficiently insulated from political parties, where it can offer its professional advice to politicians without feeling threatened or um, without feeling that um, it has to manipulate that advice to satisfy what the party wants. And, and that, I think, so it goes back to professionalism. It, it goes back to what, what measures can we put in place and if you look at the National Development Plan, there are a number of good ideas in the National Development Plan about how to professionalize the public service. It, that hasn't been implemented. Um, and so those, those measures need to be taken seriously in terms of how we recruit public servants, um, uh, you know, what, what is the criteria that we use, how do we minimize political interference in the selection of those officials, um, creating a, a, a special office within government to oversee um, and to coordinate the work of, of officials, which is not uh, political. Um, so a kind of like a chief civil servant type office. You know, fixing the very problematic relationship that, that has existed between ministers and, uh, and heads of department. Um, so there are things in the National Development Plan that I think if they were implemented, could really help move us to a more professional public service. So then you would posit that we are still suffering from the effects of colonization and then apartheid thereafter in terms of our traditions of bureaucratic service? I suppose in, in, maybe in a, in a general way. Look, you, 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 there certainly our, our public service historically was shaped by the nature of colonial rule, which was very hierarchical. Uh, very centralized, um, which which didn't give officials much room to be creative and and, and uh, didn't give them much discretion and and autonomy. So it, it was it was um, it was very top down. And but but that isn't necessarily you know that's not a fundamental characteristic of colonialism. You could say it's a fundamental problem with bureaucracy as a whole, that it, that it is a very top-down <laughs> hierarchical model that, that many countries use, uh, you know, going back to this, this, uh, this Weberian model, which has its benefits. You know, one, one of the nice things about having a system in which officials have to account you know, before any decision is made, it needs to be 
checked. Uh, it needs to be signed off. You know, th there has to be a system of, of checks and balances and accountability in place because it prevents abuse of power. So there are there are benefits to to a system like that, but there are there are also constraints. The the excessive layers of accountability can actually slow down how responsive uh, our institutions are. So again, that's not that's not by nature colonial necessarily. Um, uh, so, so in that sense, I think you know the the culture of bureaucracy that we've inherited uh, has kind of carried carried on, carried through, despite efforts in the 1990s to to promote this kind of managerial private sector model of of uh, of, of running our public service, which was meant to be to give officials more discretion and more flexibility. That really hasn't taken root in South Africa, despite all the, the rhetoric. So, um, so, so no, I don't think it's, it's, it's colonial inheritance as, as much as, as, as a more entrenched bureaucratic culture, which many countries suffer from, which has simply carried on. And, and I think there, uh, the combination of, 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 of ensuring that top officials are more professional uh, and and feel that they they are more they are insulated from politicians that they're not uh, they shouldn't be dictated to but but they should advise politicians as professionals but also trying to 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 reduce the red tape it's it's something which is a common feature of of, of the criticism of bureaucracy how do we reduce the red tape make these institutions more responsive part of doing that is I think giving managers greater um, room to make decisions and, and giving them greater discretion and, and autonomy to use their judgment and, and not have to subject their decisions to so many um, signatures and procedures. Um, I think that's that could really unlock the responsiveness of our of our institutions and, and consequently make service delivery move quicker. Do you think that South Africa's level of corruption is unique to South Africa, considering our history and our our continental context? I don't think our levels of corruption are, are unique. Um, you know, one of the ways of, of viewing or understanding corruption in the, in, the, in the writing and the research on it is to distinguish between sort of so-called grand corruption and the sort of more petty or, or lower level corruption. And I think on both scores, South Africa is, is not unique. Um, if you look at the, the massive grand corruption scandals which have been rocking Brazil in recent years, um, there's no reason to think that state capture, which is our version, is any different or is fundamentally different from that. It, it is, you know, it's high level, it's coordinated, it, in, it involves top members of, of the governing political party uh, and it entails uh, sort of a complex, intricate network of, of theft. So if we call that state capture, <laughs> we can see that in other countries, not, ju not just in Brazil uh, and not just in, in industrializing countries, that, that South Africa is hardly unique in terms of the kind of sophisticated political manipulation of, of, uh, of um, whether it be tender and procurement, uh, kickbacks, um, Bribery, you know, complex bribery schemes. So we're hardly unique there, but we're also not unique when it comes to the 
more petty corruption, you know, the paying a bribe to a home affairs official or a traffic cop. Um, you know, if you look at um, um, surveys, uh, there are a whole range of, of you know, global surveys around the, the how extensive bribery is. Uh, and, and the kind of bribery that you see in South Africa is not unique to what you see in, in many other countries. At least if you look at public opinion or, or public perceptions of, of how often people uh, who have been surveyed feel that they or, or when they're asked, have you been, have you, have you had to pay a bribe for to get a particular service? If you look at the the, the data across Africa, there isn't much variation across countries. I think in some countries you, you might see, you know, it. Levels might be um, more more pronounced, but th there's no significant variation uh, across countries. So, in that sense, you know, th there's a risk that the whole state capture narrative forces us to believe that we're unique. But, but I don't think on either score, on, on the grand corruption or on the petty corruption, um, we are unique. Um, perhaps, you know, and, and it's a bit counterintuitive, but but you know. I think one of the one of the benefits of knowing how much corruption there is in the country, again, whether it's at the state capture level or at the at the lower levels, is that we have we're, we're much better at detecting <laughs> levels of corruption, and that speaks to the fact that I think we're more transparent as, as a country. We have a healthy non-governmental sector that are watching government like a hawk. So what we know, the data and the, the understanding that, that citizens have of corruption is far better than it ever used to be because we have an open enough society in which uh, organizations, including in government, so government and, and non-governmental organizations are able and free without being imprisoned to ask questions about the problem of corruption, and so, so part, part of, so, it's, so, so, on the one hand, it's a negative because we see how pervasive corruption is. But on the other hand, fortunately, we live in a society in which there are a lot of organizations, a lot of people, doing a lot of good work, probing, you know, investigative journalists. I mean, we've got outstanding investigative journalists in this country who are putting out stories and books that uh, are able to tell us how serious the problem is. And so, you know, if you ask, if you say to yourself, "Well, what if we didn't have that level of um, freedom to be able to do that?" We we wouldn't know half of what we know now. So I think, in that sense as well, um, gauging how serious corruption is in, in, in South Africa versus other countries is also a function of our freedom and ability to be able to detect it. In one of your lecture series, you explained how issues of post-colonial geopolitics, which obviously refers to unnatural borders and so forth, results in political instability. How there was an emergence of a personalized brand of politics post-independence in many sub-Saharan African countries. How there was a significant escalation of public demands for social and economic services piled onto bureaucracies in these countries, which were then struggling to scale up to respond, and you also addressed how sluggish economic growth was characteristic in many of these countries post-independence. Now, considering this, how many of these characteristics could definitely be regarded as possible explanations for the level of corruption we see in politics in South Africa? So here we're talking about a set of historical, historical conditions which were associated with how 
um, uh, the public service made the transition from colonial rule to independence. And I think, I mean, the flux, if you think about that time, even in South Africa, I mean, so we experienced that here decades after many, many other African countries went through it in the 60s and the 70s. Mm. Um, and so that, th those, th those periods, those transitional periods are by their nature defined by flux, a lot of moving parts. The system of government is being transformed in the process of transformation. Uh, and, and, and part of the challenge with that is, is that how do you maintain, you, you, you can't just eliminate an entire system and infrastructure of government and then rebuild it. So, so in a sense, it, it, it part, the tra a transition means that you've got to try to maintain existing levels of government activity while you shift to a very different model. So when that happens, it, it, it invites a great deal of risk for corruption, um, mismanagement, uh, fraud, um, because because things are moving so quickly, um, it's hard to keep a clear um, focus on on what on, on what government is doing because it's in flux, and and when you've got confusion, uh, when you've got a period of of, of rapid transition, it, it always creates opportunities for um, for nefarious activity, and I think that's what happened. I mean, if you see it in South Africa, it's what happened in the 1990s, particularly in provinces. You know, there are government reports that have highlighted how the movement from the old provincial system to the new system created considerable opportunity for graft and, and corruption, uh, uh, where you know record keeping was uh, 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 you know, financial management, record keeping, the number of people that you had on staff, all of those things were in flux because we were, we were moving from one system to the other. And so it, it creates a great deal of opportunities for manipulation and for enrichment. And, and so I think, um, particularly at the provincial level, we, 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 str we um, struggled. You know, provinces were considered very dysfunctional. Well, not all provinces, but certainly many, many provinces with, with large enough populations were, were struggling to implement basic services uh, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s, and and some provinces still, you know, so so we, we, we haven't resolved, you know, provinces like the Eastern Cape and Popo, particularly around big services like education, um, are still struggling. Um, so and so I think the reference that you made here was was a reference to Sub-Saharan Africa, and so I see I see what happened. In South Africa in the 1990s, particularly at the provincial level, as mirrored by what would have happened in many other African countries in those first years of, of independence, that a whole new system was being made, and it and it uh, the the the, system, the political system was being redesigned, and, and it created opportunities for new elites. So we've got this phrase in political science, elite formation. So so how do political elites? How are they born? particularly new elites who take over from previous sets of elites. And, and so there's also tremendous opportunity for a rapid formation of new political elites who have access to the state, which they never had before. And depending on your motives, 
you know, you, the, your your access to the state could actually could could either be used for for positive things, or personal enrichment. Um, and I think in a lot of countries, particularly uh, a lot of countries in Africa, you you had um, this very personalized brand of politics developing. So you had you had new elites who who have obtained access to the state and who built cults of personality. Who built, in some cases, um, dynasties? So you had leaders who served a long time in office, who appointed their friends, family, whose sons mm. took took over from them. You, you, you had, and, and that really stunted the growth of a lot of countries because because most of the assets of the state were being used to maintain the the, the enrich and, and I think maintain the the lifestyles of, of a very small. Group of people to the detriment of, of um, the general public, and and so I, I think we've got a real opportunity in South Africa to avoid. We have avoided the kind of um, personalized brand of politics in the way that we've seen in other African countries. Partly because we see we, we appear to have a, a healthy, competitive party political system mm. that parties are big enough to not allow individuals to, to dominate them, uh, well, in, in the way that it happened in other countries. Uh, and if you think about the new dispensation, uh, we've just had elections, we've got uh, a new president who we know is, is not going to be able to dominate his own party, and he's going to have to govern in a, in a very delicate, balanced, collaborative way. And I think that could be a positive, including with the opposition, and with the EFF, with the DA. So I think that could be a positive thing for South Africa, where uh, we're not at risk of, of having a single individual. And I think Jacob Zuma came close, uh, but but hopefully we're moving away from that now. We're moving to a system where where uh, there's going to be much more collaboration. Because because we know that the president is, is does not have the strength, even if he wanted to dominate the ANC, he's not he's not capable of doing it now. Some might argue or suggest that uh, in terms of our racial divide and our history, black South Africans are not defined in terms of previously disadvantaged, no. but in terms of race, they might have higher levels of self-interest, especially when they get into positions of power and governance. No because they seek to rectify their own uh, previous disadvantages and they seek to enrich their own families and their own circles. Now, that might be used by some as an, as an excuse or as a legitimate reason to incentivize these individuals and public service officials to enrich themselves. Now, how does that then translate into white corruption in terms of white public officials who perhaps were not disadvantaged by apartheid then also committing acts of corruption and fraud. I, I don't agree that, that we can racialize corrupt behavior like that. Um, so let me just say that clearly. I, I, I don't agree that, we, mm. that, that corruption can be racialized in, in the way that you've explained it there. I think it's, it, it, it comes down to the, the, you know, the, the positionality, I suppose, of, of Individuals, where they sit within a a political party that is able to access and and manage the state, and uh, that's where you get motives 
driving people that can either use that access to enrich themselves or use it to uh, you know, use the levers of the state and the resources at their access to, to improve livelihoods on a wide scale, uh, but, but particularly improve the, the living conditions of um, black South Africans who were disproportionately uh, deprived of public services historically. So, so that's not a racial. You know, so, so what motivates corruption is not. I can't see any any racial element to it at all. It, it comes down to again you know, the, the, the where 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 an individual is in terms of where they can access the state and what they choose to do mm. in that moment, where where they're a minister or they're they're heading a a, a, a public entity, a state-owned enterprise. You know, wh- what are they going to do with their authority? Their power to be able to make decisions is, is it going to be to enrich themselves, like we've seen with state capture, or to to run that organization uh, in in a way that benefits the largest amount of people possible? And that I don't think that can be linked to race. Um, I, I think I think that that and having said that, I think that there are a large enough number of people within the ANC, for example, and I think we need to speak about the ANC because it's mm-hmm. been the only party that's had the ability to govern the state at the level that, that uh, and with the access that it has for the last 25 years. There are a large enough number of people within the ANC who would not have engaged in the kind of state capture that, that we saw. And, and so even within the party, they're, they're, you know, they're, 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 and it's coming out in the wash now with all these commissions of inquiry that, that there, have been a, there has been a network of individuals that took the decision to misuse um, their positions. So you defeat the, the claim that uh, previous disadvantage might legitimize self-interest? Yeah, I would. I would. I, I don't think that, that one can say that. Now, what is the way forward for South Africa in terms of our public bureaucratic design? Well, I mean, let, let's break it down then. So, so I think the principle has to be we need to professionalize our, our public service. Now, how do we do that? Okay, well, some of the ways that we can think about doing that is to say, well, think about how we recruit officials, um, particularly at the highest levels. I'm not talking about lower level officials here, sub, sub-management. Um, I'm talking about the people in the top half, the, the, the key decision makers in government departments. That number, you know, they don't number, the, they're not the biggest chunk of the public service, but they're certainly the most influential. We need to try to reduce the level of political interference in decisions about who those people are. So I've argued in the past that it's probably not likely and realistic for us to depoliticize appointments because that, that then means that we have a, a public service that could potentially obstruct and refuse to implement the policy agenda of, of the government, which is equally dangerous. Okay, we don't want that, particularly in a democracy. But we can reduce the level of political interference about who gets to serve in those senior positions. And so I've argued that, that we need to move to a system, in, a different system of appointing, recruiting and appointment, appointing officials, which limits the direct involvement of politicians. Um, we need to, I've recently heard um, a colleague mention that, that one of the things that's being debated is, is whether we should move away from uh, a contract form of appointment for direct directors general 
because it's created too much inflexibility. As soon as the relationship between a, a director general and a minister sours, the the fact that those individuals are are appointed on the basis of a contract, a short term, lim a limited term contract, means that a minister can get rid of them more easily. So we need to create stability at the top, and one way of doing that might be to say, let's appoint the best people to do the job. So we we limit the 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 level of political involvement in choosing who those people are, or at least we make it more transparent, so that it's not just up to a minister. To say I want this person in, you know, there's more of a committee system that's it's open and transparent. This is how we appointed that individual, and this is how we can show that they have the requisite skills to head a department. And we we get rid of a contract, and we and we give that person security of tenure. We 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 give them some some job security so that they know that when they make decisions. If it's a decision that a, a, a politician doesn't like, the politician can't just get rid of them overnight, right? Because they're on a, on a contract. So there are some things that we can do about how we recruit and appoint officials to, to create more stability, ensure that there's greater professionalism. Um, I think one thing that I'd also like to see is, as again, I've spoken about throughput. How do we give? I, you know, I teach masters. PhD undergraduate students in public policy and administration, and they ask me all the time, "What can I use with this degree?" And so I, I say to them, "You know, you can do this, that, and the other. One of the things you can do is you can you can be a senior decision maker in government." But then I look at how politicized our bureaucracy is, and and then I have to say to them, "But you know what? You have a master's degree in public administration, but if you don't know somebody on the inside,、hmm. you're not going to get that job." And it's disheartening for me to say that. So what I'd like to see is, is some sort of graduate scheme, some sort of intern、uh, internship training pathway that allows tertiary students who have studied public management, studied public administration, to have a, a realistic shot and a pathway to applying those skills in in government, where they don't have to be worried that just because. They don't know somebody on the inside, or they're not aligned with the political party. They're not going to get the job, because then what are we going to do with, you know, we, we've got a graduate unemployment problem,、mm. and part of the, I think, the reason for that is that, that that when we have a politicized civil service, it creates barriers for people with qualifications to get into the positions, and, and so I think that's the second thing that we need to create some kind of pathway for graduates. I mean, those two things alone, and I think thirdly, maybe giving a you know reducing the the level of red tape、um, constraints on decision making,、uh, you know, really genuinely giving managers who we can trust because they've got the skills some discretion to be able to make rapid decisions. Because I think if we do that, that can unlock service delivery and certainly reduce the the, the lag time. Uh, in, in in getting services out, because I think a lot of the time bureaucracy does get in the way, and and you know if we can put officials that that are trustworthy in place, there's no reason why we can't trust them to make good decisions without throwing a lot of red tape on them.